This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 93 of Here's How for the 11th of October 2019. Cycling might be good for your cardiovascular health, but almost any discussion of it seems to get the blood pumping for all the wrong reasons. Let's talk to one journalist at the centre of a recent Twitter storm. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. In a few minutes we'll have this. I break the I break the lights all the time on my bicycle myself. So slap me, you know. No, I mean, no, no, that's not my point at all. I am Paul, actually one of those cyclists that motorists give out about. That's coming up shortly. Uh, first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon, especially Keith Ofuelon, who signed up as a patron since the last podcast. I really appreciate everyone who does that. Uh, Patreon is a website that allows people to donate a dollar or two per podcast or per month, so I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as Keith and the other donors, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. Francis Rawls is in an American prison, and that's where he's staying. He lost his case at the Third U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia. So what's he been convicted of? Nothing. Rawls, a former Philadelphia police officer, has been in jail for 17 months because he invoked the Fifth Amendment. He said that he wouldn't give self-incriminating information to police investigating him. But the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is, you know, the Fifth Amendment. It guarantees the right not to incriminate yourself. The exact text is, no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. So how come the court denied his appeal with three judges voting unanimously against him? It's partly because the information that the police and the courts want him to hand over, and that he is refusing, are passwords to encrypted external hard drives that were connected to his computer. The police seized them along with his computer because they believe they contain child porn, and they do have good reason to believe that, and they convinced a judge to give them a warrant to seize and search his computer. The appeals court ruled that forensic examination showed that Rawls had downloaded thousands of files, the hash values of which indicated they were child pornography. That's a bit of geek speak, but it basically means that they were monitoring his online activity. They didn't get the actual files he downloaded, but they recognised that they were extremely likely to be identical to files known to be child porn images. There was other evidence One image depicting a pubescent child in a sexually suggestive position was found on his computer, and Raw's sister said that her brother showed her hundreds of pictures and videos of child porn, and logs on his computer that suggested the user had visited groups with titles in common with child exploitation. There are some problems with that evidence, 
Logs of a computer visiting pages with titles in common with child exploitation doesn't mean that that computer downloaded child porn, and they don't prove who generated those logs. But that said, you can be damn sure I wouldn't be leaving Francis Rawls alone with any child of mine. But Rawls hasn't been convicted of anything. He hasn't even been charged with anything. But the court ruled that the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply. The lower court, the appeals court and the police all agreed that the presence of child porn on those encrypted drives was a foregone conclusion. That's where my real problem was. If it's a foregone conclusion, why not just use the evidence that shows it's a foregone conclusion to charge and convict him? The Electronic Frontier Foundation commented on the case, saying, Compelled decryption is inherently testimonial because it compels a suspect to use the contents of their mind to translate unintelligible evidence into a form that can be used against them. The US Constitution's Fifth Amendment provides an absolute privilege against such self-incriminating compelled decryption. But the court disagreed, and Rawls stays in prison until he hands over the passwords, even though he has already been inside for longer than he might expect to be if he was sentenced for possessing child porn. It's hard to have sympathy with someone who's probably a paedophile, but that's the whole point. If our rights can be cancelled by just being accused of being a criminal, then none of those rights will last very long. There's no point in saying that everyone is entitled to a fair trial as long as they're not suspected of being a criminal. And this is not a rarefied situation. Many countries have a variation of this, but New Zealand has gone a step further and made it a crime for anyone travelling in or out of that country not to unlock their phone or other devices for border officials to snoop through and copy as they see fit. No reason, no warrant required, and anyone who doesn't comply will have their devices confiscated along with a $5,000 fine. So, if anyone you've ever been sexting with decides to take a trip to New Zealand, you can expect your private photos to be shared around the break room of the border guards and then be sent on to all their friends and their friends' friends and so on. It's long been established that countries are entitled to check the goods coming across their borders to make sure that they're legitimate, the right taxes are paid and so on. When the electronic age came in, that principle seems to have been quietly extended to examining the data stored on laptops, phones and so on. I just don't buy the line that this is to protect us from terrorists or organised crime. Anyone who is wise to those laws will be smart enough to make sure they only travel with clean devices. If they want to store or transport incriminating data, they can just encrypt it, email it to themselves and pick it up once they've crossed the border. Sure, these laws might pick up the odd, dumb criminal. But that leaves the question, are you willing to sacrifice all of your privacy, hand over all your data to the border agents of any country you or anyone you've been in contact with travels to, for them to make use of on their next bathroom break or to pass on to their secret police, just to pick up the odd, dumb criminal? 
Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. The lines are open 24-7 and you can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. The health editor of the Irish Times, also a lifelong cyclist, is Paul Cullen, and he's on the line with me now. Paul, you wrote a story that was put on the front page of the Irish Times last month with the headline, and I know you're going to tell me that you don't write the headlines, uh, but the headline on it was almost 70% of cyclists without helmet at the time of head trauma. And that was referring to a study, apparently, of who was wearing a helmet when they were brought in because they had an injury to their head, obviously. And it got a bit of a reaction. But maybe you could just tell me, first of all, where you got that story from. Well, William, there's been a really big uh, neuroscience, uh, neurosurgeons conference in Dublin in the last while, in the last few weeks, down at the Convention Centre. Huge thing, uh, European Society of Europe. Neuro, uh, neurosurgeons, and uh, it was chaired by an Irishman, Kieran Bulger from Beaumont Hospital. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a big honour to have that there. Um, pretty technical stuff, pretty cutting edge. Um, but I was interested in giving it some coverage. I was keen to do that, firstly. And uh, I had a b- good browse through the um, four or five day um, programme of the conference, and I came up with one or two um, items which were of wider interest. Mm-hmm. And one of them was a small study uh, done of uh, presentations to uh, Bowman Hospital's neurosurgical unit, which is the national um, trauma unit. For anyone who has a bang on the head, basically, you either get sent to Beaumont or your scans get, uh, are likely to be sent there for a second opinion. Um, and this wasn't, in fact, just about cyclists. It was about sports and exercise-related um, injuries over a 30-month period. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I got in contact with a doctor who was uh, behind that and who was presenting that at the conference. And uh, he sent me the information and I talked to him. And that's what the... Uh, that's the, that's the genesis of the article. There was some, I think you could justifiably call, hostile reaction on Twitter, at least, and you said you don't pay too much attention to that. You're probably correct. But I'm wondering, do you think that maybe any of the criticism might be justified? And the reason I'm asking you is because I was looking at a study by a couple of uh, other universities, mostly in the US, some in Australia as well. But the one that I really caught my eye was by Kelsey Ralph, State University of New Jersey. And it said that the study reveals that local news coverage tends to shift blame in bicycle accidents towards vulnerable road users and away from drivers. Coverage almost always treats crashes as isolated incidents, obscuring public health nature, the public health nature of the problem. The pattern of coverage likely contributes to the limited public outcry about pedestrian and bicyclist fatalities. Do you think there's anything in that in Irish media? Yeah, I'm kind of aware in general terms about some of that uh, kind of research, often from other countries um, and other contexts and other departments long far away from the medical ones. Mm-hmm. Um, ivory towers do what ivory towers do. Um, I think I'll go back to what I said, first of all. Where did this study come from? It's a snapshot of 30 months of presentations at the single national neurosurgical centre in Beaumont Hospital in Dublin. 
that's the one that we have in our country. Yeah. It's not a tribunal of inquiry. It's not a PhD. It's a small presentation based on a small presentation given at a very prestigious conference. So take it for what it is rather than um, assuming that it is more than it is. I sure. think but pause yeah, I, I understand that. that but pause point. on that. Pause on that for a moment, Paul, because the headline on the article, again, which I know you didn't write, but yeah. I think it's a fair headline. It's a fair I headline. Think it's a fair headline, too. I was going to say that. I have no problem with the headline. It's based on what's in, Good headlines are based on what's in, in an article. Usually exactly. In yes. introductory paragraph. Exactly. And the headline says almost 70% of cyclists without helmet at time of head trauma. And that does seem to focus attention on whether someone was wearing a helmet at the time they came off their bike. And it's seeming to make that irrelevant. You know, if it's in the paper, it's something that stands out. But what percentage of cyclists wear a helmet at all? And does wearing a helmet make you less likely to end up in Beaumont with a head trauma? Well, there are other questions that are not answered by this study. This study says... Um, exactly what you said. And mm-hmm. articles, by their nature, focus on issues. And the order in which facts are um, delivered in articles f- um, focus on um, zero in even further on those issues. And the headline, as you say, is a distillation of the article. That's the nature of the business. That's the nature of journalism for the last 200 years. Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. a little bit but- unaware of that, if I can just finish, please. Okay. Um, so, um, where do we ask? We are at the, uh, the, the, the simple fact that a majority of the, of, um, of the cyclists who checked into the uh, neurosurgery unit and had serious injuries were not wearing a helmet. It doesn't say any more than that and it doesn't say any less than that. Are, are you uh, sure? Are you sure, Paul, Paul, Paul? Are, you sure, are you sure it doesn't, it doesn't say more than that? To talk about, please, if I can finish, please. I'm your guest here. It doesn't attempt to talk about... Um, whether the questions that you raise, the broader, the broader, wider issues. There's plenty of space for people who are interested enough to do research into those issues. And I think this, to some extent there is some work done on about percentage-wearing helmets. But would it change anything? If, if, uh, if you knew one of those uh, 70% of cyclists, would it change that? It doesn't change the fact that a limited number of people um, suffered uh, severe injuries. Four people died, mm-hmm. and they were all cyclists from the sports an exercise-related um, cohort. Mm-hmm. And I think I know one of them. And I know what's gone, what they've gone through. And I mm-hmm. know what their family ha- has gone through. And I'm not, I, I'm not seeking to introduce that emotional component to this article. But uh, I, I may as well, if other people are going to introduce specious arguments about wider societal conditions. Okay, but saying, putting that in the headline or in the article, it's high up in the article, the figure as well, at least appears to be a claim that it is relevant. And it may factual. not be relevant. It, it's certainly factual, but, you know, you're I mean, a journalist. Relevant. Yeah. relevant okay. to what, exactly? Well, the one other study that I've been looking at, which is by Alex Delbosk from Monash University in Australia. What department of Monash University? I believe, and I don't have it in front of me, but I believe it is a health-related department. But I will, sure. I will double-check that. But the headline on her study is, Dehumanization of Cyclists Predicts self-reported aggressive behavior towards them. What that in plain English means is that people, principally principally drivers, who express hostility towards cyclists are also more likely to self-report driving aggressively at and around cyclists. That and you will find that many cyclists... What has that got to do with the article that we're discussing here today? 
Let me tell you, let me tell you what I think, and I'll allow you to come back. But what I think okay. is that there is a general public mood or mood, particularly amongst a cohort of drivers, that cyclists are entirely responsible for getting out of their way. And that if a cyclist is hit by a vehicle, it is automatically the cyclist's fault because they didn't get out of the way. And that's reflected in enough, not necessarily yours, but in an awful lot of news reporting. And for example, it's very easy to find news reporting about cyclists being injured that focuses on whether they were wearing high visibility clothing or focuses on whether they were wearing a helmet. There is much less focus on the way that uh, the behavior of the drivers. Would you I don't think that's that? true, uh, William, because uh, we're very limited. And I know I've been a, pr- a practitioner of journalism for three decades. Mm-hmm. We're very limited in how we can report. Uh, we don't even call them accidents anymore, collisions or yeah, incidents, yeah. Um, between um, uh, vehicles, p- cyclists, pedestrians. We are very limited. We rely on very, very sparse data, from, uh, information from Guardi at the time. And it may only be in the inquest that occurs if there's a fatality in serious cases many, some months or years later, that a wider uh, picture and maybe an unsatisfactory picture from your point of view comes mm-hmm. to light. So there are, I, I challenge you to point out those uh, reports where, uh, you know, it was stated that a cyclist wasn't wearing a high-vis jacket or a light or something like that. Uh, they're just as, as, as rare as hen's teeth. Maybe they exist, but they don't. I would like to see much more... Um, complete and comprehensive reporting of, let's call them accidents, because everybody does in, in everyday parlance. Yeah. One of my colleagues did a splendid uh, job a number of years ago, um, Peter Murta. He did a forensic account of a, uh, the first deaths on the road on a particular year. It was New Year's, uh, New Year's Day or New Year's Eve into, into the day, and two people died in a collision in County Mayo. Mm-hmm. And he went through that forensic from all sides, talked to all sides. Um, it was a taxi driver, local taxi driver, and, and some, pe- some person from Mayo who, or sorry, up from Dublin, who was at, uh, in a local hotel and left that suddenly in the middle of the night and they two collided. And that kind of forensic analysis revealed so much about and, and, and said so much. And I'd love to see more of that, but it's hard to do because the facts are just not there. And certainly in the absence of a fatality, they're not there. Okay, I, I understand what you're saying on that. And I also, I'm very sympathetic in the sense of uh, that you mentioned sometimes it's very difficult to get the information and you're relying on coroner reports and so forth. But what's not there is also sometimes relevant. And I'm sure you would agree that in public discourse, there is a huge, and also online and social media and Twitter and wherever you want to look at it if you're going to risk your mental health for that, there is a huge emphasis on the alleged flouting of traffic rules by cyclists, when in fact international research and research in Ireland by the Road Safety Authority shows very, very clearly that drivers disobey the rules of the road much more often than cyclists but that's not Too reflected wrong, don't make a right no 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 no, no 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 i'm not suggesting no i'm not, suggest- I'm not suggesting they do listen, no no paul William, paul paul, 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 paul. No, no, allow me, me to finish speak. the point me, allow me to I finish the, the point paul. i break the lights all the time on my bicycle myself so slap me you know no no that's not my point at all i am actually one of that motors give out about paul you know we're a long way about from the content of the article no but no 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 i'm trying to relate it to the article paul hang on a second hang on a second 
I'm trying to relate it to the article because what yeah. I'm saying is that the public discourse doesn't reflect the actual reality. The actual measured reality isn't reflected on the public discourse. And anybody who makes any comment on social media, for example, about there should be a cycle lane here, will immediately be flooded with half a dozen comments, at least, of saying cyclists shouldn't get cycle lanes because they break the red lights. And that is not mirrored by saying, well, we shouldn't build this or that motorway because drivers break the rules of the road more often. There's no balance in the public discourse. Would you agree? So you were going to relate it back to the article that we're discussing, and I can't see how you are. You, you, your, your starting point was that some people gave out about this article, right? Mm-hmm. Now, were they right in giving out that you, you, haven't, you haven't broached that in any way? So I'm happy to have a broader discussion about cycling, and, I, have, and I, I suspect our views would not differ all that much. I think it's a war out there, and, uh, you know, uh, devil take the hindmost. You really have to watch out for yourself. Yeah. Um, and I, I have been that angry cyclist, uh, enraged at the, the, the conduct of road users. But I also realize that... Um, we're very vulnerable. We're very frail. And if people are being killed on the road, off, knocked off their bicycles or falling off their bicycles, people should know about it. And that's what this article is about. Uh, absolutely. And I agree with you on that. And, and I think you're right. That There's nothing probably, more we agree, than that. We, we agree on more things than we disagree. People can't tweet once they're dead. <laughs> that's certainly true. But for example, but okay, just on the very broad point, would you accept that there, in the public discourse, there is a hostility there that is disproportionate well, is, well as I started with Twitter um, Twitter is the uh, grand central of hostility I mean true, true. So, somewhere on Twitter at any one point somebody is giving out about someone else uh, something else they're never happy you know? But well, no, leaving, leave, leaving yeah, Twitter so aside, leaving Twitter aside, we had we had the RSA, we had the RSA, the Road Safety yeah, Authority, I mean, uh, submitting we're an article. Numbered, obviously, there are there are bigger contingent. The the motoring lobby are are uh, um, a bigger. Uh, but I think you have to recognise that things have improved. I think you have to recognise that there's a lot more crossover now between cycling and and driving. Um, it used to be that cyclists were were dirty people who wore. Um, oil skins and had, you know, sort of recovered in muck and they were observed by the people driving Speak by for yourself. their Toyotas <laughs> and their Mercedes. Now, uh, the, the driver of the Mercedes is likely to have a, a bike rack and a state-of-the-art mountain bike uh, on the back. And it doesn't make him uh, a proper commuting cyclist or her even. Um, but there is a lot more. My point is there's a lot more crossover. People know what it's like to drive uh, and have difficulty with cyclists. Um, um, who maybe are poorly lit or whatever, and people who are cyclists know what it's like to put up with um, ruffians on the road uh, behind steering wheels. So I think there's a lot more understanding. Um, yes, there's hostility. Is it disproportionate? Perhaps by dint of the greater numbers. Um, perhaps it's based on, on um, fact, or some of it's based on fear. Um, certainly, I think, uh, listen, I had a bad accident a few years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was out on the streets very frail after um, uh, breaking an awful lot of bones. And any time I saw a cycle, uh, cyclist come near me on the pavement, uh, and I have been a cyclist on the pavement, and it's not even illegal to cycle on the pavement, any time I saw a cyclist, I was, I was uh, fearful. So that's how older people feel. Uh, and I, it was I a good lesson yes. for me to understand how other people feel. I wouldn't have understood that before I had my accident. 
I understand what you're saying, but I'm thinking in particular of an article submitted to actually your rival newspaper, The Independent, from the RSA, the Rural Safety Authority, which labelled cycle lanes as psycho lanes, as in the film Psycho, and flatly contradicted the actual research that the RSA has done, saying that cyclists are a law unto themselves and have complete disregard for the rules of the road, when in fact RSA research shows that drivers break the rules of the road with much greater frequency. In, well, who wrote this article? The RSA refused to say, but it was submitted under the byline yeah, RSA I expert. I can't really talk um, about it. Yeah. Sure, sure, no. But my point is, and here's the link to your article, that I think there is a culture of it being acceptable to make comments bordering on advocating violence towards cyclists. And that creates a public discourse of victim blaming. And when you have a headline that says 70% of cyclists weren't wearing a head a helmet when they had a head trauma, that contributes to somebody and who perhaps not only didn't buy your paper, or maybe didn't even pick it up, just walked past and saw the headline and said, ha, yeah, it's all their own fault. <laughs> just... You know, listen, if we start losing sight of the facts, we're lost as a civilization. The article, just to remind people of the headline, it says almost 70% of cyclists without the helmet were without a helmet at the time of their head trauma. It's factual, it's correct, it's accurate. And it's representative of the state's main neurological center over a decent period, which is over 30, 30 months. You've, you know, as I say, it's not a tribunal of inquiry. It's not a PhD. It's not a, a random, uh, randomized controlled trial which you couldn't do with cyclists, obviously, anyway, because um, you wouldn't allow people to have unnecessary accidents. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a snapshot. It's a factual snapshot. Take it for what it is, move on, on your bike or on your car, uh, and get on with your life and stop um, threatening <laughs> over things that you don't need to fret about. One question. It is a fact, and it most certainly has been uh, demonstrated scientifically, that if drivers and car passengers wore helmets, they would suffer less head trauma and a helmet for a driver would probably offer a greater safety benefit than it would to a cyclist. That's never been... I've often, you know, I've often used this argument myself in in, in friendly debates with friends uh, over, over, you know, cyclists versus um, versus drivers. I'm not sure I've taken it uh, as seriously as a fact, but um, it's been asserted in some study somewhere. But um, yeah, maybe, maybe. But um, does it, does that change anything for the uh, for the cyclists, the 26 cyclists who were sent for treatment there, eight even of whom weren't uh, wearing a helmet, or the four cyclists? Who died? Um, two wearing a helmet, two two not wearing a helmet, one wearing a helmet, and one not known. Um, mm-hmm. It that's you know people people die on the roads, uh, and so too many cyclists die on the roads. And I think an article like this, um, you know, goes the other way, and it contributes to an awareness of the issues that are out there. One of those issues is that that almost certainly the most effective safety contraption for a cyclist is another cyclist's. The higher the density of cyclists on the road by a very wide margin, the lower the rate of accidents involving cyclists because drivers are then more familiar and more expecting cyclists on the road. Would you think that that culture that I've mentioned, that is perhaps, you know, you've experienced as well, 
puts some cyclists or some would-be cyclists off. For example, I would suggest that a very, very large proportion of the cyclists in Dublin, at least, are male. There's a lot of women out there who would cycle but just feel bullied off the road. Uh, well, yeah, that that is true, less true than it was. I mean, I'm in an interesting position. I mean, as I said, I've cycled all my life, had a few accidents over the years, not thankfully uh, in recent times. I, I've moved to a slower bike, really, and around town so that to, to lessen the chance. I always make sure my gears are properly uh, serviced, which I think is a really important thing, mm-hmm. and that people should know which is their left, uh, the front uh, brake from their right sorry i've always made sure my brakes are properly serviced um but and the people should know their front brake from their right brake because it changes the behavior of the bike when you when you pull one of them um uh, but i have i have young children uh the oldest is 14 Mm -hmm. and i want them to they have to particularly the two who are in secondary i want to cycle more often to secondary school which is a 20 25 minute cycle and I have to try and overcome my wife's lack of enthusiasm, not complete lack of enthusiasm for it, and so, to some extent there is as well. Um, but I cannot do it because of the difficulties uh, in terms of, for them, uh, negotiating the traffic until they're good proper age because of the lack of proper cycle lanes and the chaotic nature of the, uh, of the journey that's involved. You know, once they get to a cycle lane and they're on that, that's fine. But it's the bit in between. Uh, to pick uh, an example to go through Donnybrook is uh, pretty nightmarish for somebody who doesn't have the experience of doing it, which I, w- I would and you would probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I, like I'm completely aware of these issues. Um, and I'm heartened by the progress that's been made. And there is strength in numbers, I think. You're right there. And I think a lot of the changes happened because of the increase. Uh, but I was one of the diehards who always cycled through the dark days when there was nobody there. And to some extent, I, you know, if, if I'm thinking about my kids, they need to be hardened up. Um, you know, you cannot... You sound like I, a Victorian I, I, I don't, parent. I don't believe in the utopia of completely separated traffic where a cyclist uh, would be able to go on the roads, never have to worry coming uh, to come into any proximity with a motor motor vehicle, because I just think that's uh, a long way off in in terms in Ireland, and you'd be better off um, teaching proper cycle craft to cyclists. Paul Cullen, health editor of the Irish Times and mammal, possibly middle aged man in Lycra. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks, William. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Record a contribution to be included in the next show. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. I made a mistake during the heat of the discussion with Paul. I said that Alexa Delbosk of Monash University was in a health-related department at that university. In fact, Dr. Delbosk is a senior lecturer at the Department of Civil Engineering there. You can find a link to her study and to all the other ones that I referred to, along with Paul's initial article and some of the reaction to it on the website, and while you're there, you can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Here's How Podcast, and follow Paul Cullen at Paul Cullen IT. And get in touch with me if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. 
Thanks to Keith and all the other patrons on Patreon. Really appreciate you all. Means I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you can do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash here's how. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. All of that, including my Patreon link, are at www.hereshow.ie. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.